0: Welcome to the Docs Who Lift podcast, where we distill and simplify the complexities of a healthy lifestyle, exercise, medicine, and weight loss. We're excited to bring you a podcast that's a prescription for clinical practice, scientific recommendations, and just real life. This This is the Docs Who Lift podcast. Hong Kong, everybody. It's, it's <laughs> Welcome back to the Docs Who Live podcast.
1: <laughs> Why? I'm your Why? host, Dr.
0: Spencer. Got my co host, Dr. Carl Nolsky Jr., hey.
1: uh,
0: endocrinologist extraordinaire. Today, we're going to be talking about not only type 2 diabetes, but pre diabetes in terms of medications that are indicated or maybe used off label for these conditions. We uh, have talked about the uh, diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. If you missed that one, go back. And pre-diabetes as well. That goes over kind of the nuances of uh, ensuring you actually have this um, uh, condition, disease uh, state. So let's let's go over some of these. Let's go over pre-diabetes first. I think we should start uh, there. Sure. Since um, we're going to be doing a whole podcast all about diet in terms of Treating and uh, preventing pre-diabetes and type two diabetes, but let's let's talk about pre-diabetes.
1: Yeah, so you know pre-diabetes again when we're talking about obesity and type two diabetes or the risk of type two diabetes and all those complications, pre-diabetes. If you go back to the other podcast, is um, you know a state of high sugars that don't quite meet the criteria for type two diabetes, and those criteria really correlate to the long-term risk of microvascular diseases like eyes and nerves and, and kidneys and stuff. But the whole s- state of obesity associated, uh, <clears throat> you know, insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome and, and even the risk of any sugar levels is associated with cardiovascular risk long-term. And so prediabetes is like these, these levels of sugars that are just a little above normal, but don't quite meet that criteria for type two diabetes. So when we have an A1, a hemoglobin A1c of 5.7 to 6.4, or a fasting sugar of 100 to 125 milligrams per deciliter, or a two-hour post-sugar load of 140 to 199 milligrams per deciliter, that's the prediabetes range, and we we know that those people are at much higher risk of continued progression. To the pancreas not being able to keep up with that pathophysiology, and ultimately getting type two diabetes, and at much higher risk for all those complications. So we want to prevent it. And like you said, we'll do a whole podcast on diet, and and we know that weight loss is really the key to treating and preventing uh, that that type two diabetes progression. But there are medications that can be used, um, and uh, and that's what we're going to talk about medications today.
0: And so it's it's controversial whether we should be. Putting people in these pre-diabetes, basically on medicine. Should we be, should we be aggressive with medicine? We're aggressive with lifestyle, of course. That's our big thing. But you know, it's just some people, lifestyle might not be enough, or they just they're just not going to do it. I don't know. It,
1: well, and, and and this goes back to our podcast on the pathophysiology of obesity and and how obesity is so complex. And it's really, you know, pre-diabetes and type two diabetes. It's really an obesity associated complication of that. And so that's hard. And so then that's why we have medications. Well, the first medication to ever really be discussed in the realm of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes prevention is metformin, which of course is pretty famous for being the first line medication for type 2 diabetes anyways. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a second for type 2 diabetes. The, The foundation, the first line therapy for diabetes prevention in those who have type 2 diabetes is treating the obesity through diet and exercise however like we just said easier said than done so yeah. there are three big famous diabetes prevention trials right there's the the king uh, out of china that's actually we have some of the longest outcome data where they com- com- compared um, you know lifestyle efforts to s- essentially standard of care um, but in the United States, we have the Diabetes Prevention program, which compared standard, which is not much, <laughs> and to uh, Metformin or true intensive lifestyle efforts. And in the basic outcome of the trial, the the intensive lifestyle effort, which achieved pretty good weight loss on average, imperfect because obesity is hard to treat, uh, that delayed the progression to diabetes more than metformin. But metformin worked a lot better than lifestyle or uh, than, uh, than standard, I'm sorry. Standard. And, and certainly there were weight loss differences, but there are some nuances within that. You know, we got to talk about how metformin even works and all that stuff. And metformin does maybe help a little bit with weight loss.
0: A few pounds, sometimes up to maybe 10 pounds. Yeah. It's, it's very mild.
1: Generally regarded as neutral. Like if you look at, you know, guidelines, it's, it's regarded as neutral for weight because it's not dramatic, but um, you know, it really helps the liver uh, do better with its sugar metabolism, maybe a little bit with muscle
0: insulin sensitivity,
1: you know, sugar uptake, you know, even that's been kind of eh, put to the side lately. So just in general, it is a, it's a good medication for uh, insulin resistance, insulin uh, sensitivity, and uh, sugar control for sure. But um, it, it helps a little bit with diabetes prevention. When you, when you split the hairs for that diabetes prevention program, it turns out, it's, it's pretty interesting actually, it seemed to work better for those who were younger as opposed to the older patients who did way better with lifestyle. Therapy, mm. which I think is interesting. And it did tend to do a little bit better relatively for those who had prediabetes associated with a history of gestational diabetes. So, females who had gestational diabetes during pregnancy, it, it had some benefits there.
0: Yeah. I mean, and people are using this drug for longevity purposes, which we don't really recommend at this moment, uh, and, and all sorts of things. There's some possibility there's some interference when taking metformin with. With lifestyle, if mm-hmm. you're trying to exercise, it potentially minimizes some of the beneficial effects of exercise.
1: Right, which is very ironic. Right,
0: right, because it's a insulin. It might have a muscle insulin sensitizing effect that has an effect on the liver to stop spitting out so much. Uh, sugar, which is one of the reasons we increase our blood sugar with, uh, this condition. So, so metformin comes in 500 milligram tablets goes, you can take it up to what, 2000 milligrams. I use a lot of extended release due to potential side effects, uh, what about the ghost the ghost uh, pills in your, in your stool? People don't uh, think about that.
1: That's a great comment. Yeah, people don't think about it, and I don't know that doctors really think about it that much. In fact, the last time I heard much about it was a friend of ours who maybe listens to our podcast, so I won't say her name. She texted me, you may know who I'm talking about. She texted me somewhat urgently going, "Um, well, what the F, uh, I have these capsules in my stool. And uh, she was uh, working on, she was concerned about prediabetes, was taking metformin. And it turned out she was having those ghost capsules in her stool. It doesn't mean it's not absorbing. It just happens to be the, the capsule that surrounds the uh, medication. So that's kind of an interesting side note. Yeah.
0: So something to think about. Uh, people, uh, GIF side effects. Um, yeah. Di- IBS type symptoms.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of that. This Pepsi or, or diarrhea type illness. And that's why the extended release sometimes is better for Bubble people. Bubble gut. Yeah. but
0: Take it at night. You
1: know, so in general, since we're talking about metformin, we might as well talk about it in the grand scheme of things too. So it, it certainly has a little bit of diabetes prevention data, has a little bit of weight loss data, despite the animal studies and the longevity stuff. And it does have some, um, we think it has overall cardiometabolic, cardiovascular risk benefit, it just doesn't have the real cardiovascular outcome data that some of the newer medications have been mandated to have. So something called, if you ever, if anybody cares to look up the UK PDS trial, which was a, essentially just a, a sugar control trial to see what kind of outcomes would happen. It seemed to be the thing that was more associated with cardiovascular benefits. So, so we think and hope that it has those benefits, um, but it's hard to say for sure. And so it's interesting that so many people want to take it, even if they don't have prediabetes or diabetes, without really hard evidence that it really has any long-term benefit data to support it. It's so weird how people just want to take medications just to take medications if if quacks or gurus say to take it, whereas we have very strong evidence for other medications that people refuse to take.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's people love the mechanistic stuff. Uh that's, that's the big thing on, on social media. You start talking about mechanisms and people love it way more than outcomes, which is interesting.
1: Yeah. Whereas in medicine, that's what we care about because we care about what matters the most. Right. And so the mechanisms help us think about what might help. And, uh, and then we actually care about what actually helps. But in type 2 diabetes, you know, metformin has always been first line. And it's even... Well, not always. Well, Maybe okay, not. yeah, you're right.
0: Remember when I was in med school and we were do- taking board questions that were old? And it, it actually, the answer was a sulfonylureo. Oh,
1: God. Oh. And
0: remember, and you're like, oh, my God, they must not have updated the board questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, dear. Was, okay, so we'll, we'll talk about at least the last 20 to 30 years. Though. Yeah, last 20 years, I would say. And, and it actually, there's something called clinical inertia, even within guidelines. And it's so hard for people to sort of bring it down from first line because it's, we know it's good for people. We know it's, especially with diabetes and and maybe pre-diabetes, we know it has pretty darn good safety profile yeah Um, and and it's
0: cheap. Super cheap. That's,
1: that's the key. So as far as like long-term microvascular, like the, the eyes, the nerves, et cetera, um, disease state, and probably others. Metformin really is a good medicine if you have uh, you know type 2 diabetes, early type 2 diabetes, without a lot of other complications like established cardiovascular disease and kidney disease. Um, and, and probably, you know, most of the other trials that we're going to talk about with the other medications, they've all been done in addition to metformin because metformin is so established as first line that some people will argue well, that means that metformin still should be first line, yeah. even if we know that the other medications have absolute better benefits because it was always in addition to metformin. So it's a little bit hard. and some of the, you know, part of why we're doing this right now is because uh, the the American Diabetes Association, the European Association for the Study of Diabetes just came out with their updated type 2 diabetes medication consensus statement, and American Association of Clinical endocrinology just published their uh, newest 2022 diabetes, clinical practice guideline, and all of this is, is in there. And obviously we're focused on patients. So kind of, you know, bringing this to the forefront, but a lot of the debate is, well, should we be really using these other medications first line, because we know they have heart and kidney benefits, et cetera. But metformin still, you know, really sort of is essentially first line for most people with obesity, type two diabetes, and plus or minus, you know, the pre-diabetes state.
0: Yeah. Okay. So next, next in line, I, I, I don't think we can briefly talk about sulfonylureas. They're not used in probably, Yeah. I don't know, unless you're in kind of an indigent area where you can't afford anything, Yeah. but the, these sulfonylureas are basically drugs. So we've talked about them in our, our medications that cause weight gain, um, podcasts, if you want to go back to that, but basically these things put a supercharger or turbocharger on your pancreas to help you uh, increase uh, insulin output, but by doing so, it may increase your risk of hypoglycemia because as opposed to like these GLP-1 medicines that we talk about all the time, it's not um, it's not uh, glucose dependent, meaning you can start increasing your insulin levels without having glucose in your blood, increasing your risk of hypoglycemia, low blood sugars, which if you listen to our CGM podcast, we talked about how dangerous that can be, not only for just passing out and and having bad side effects, but over time, it can increase your risk of potentially cardiovascular uh, risk and events, um, which has been shown in, in some of the studies. Uh, when I was going through residency, we had a big discussion over that. So um, we don't use sulfonylureas um, pretty much ever at, at this point, but I just wanted to briefly mention them. I'd say the next in line oral um, treatment, I think, is probably going to be uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors, would you say? That's probably the next.
1: Yeah, I, as far as what we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> now, you know, I, I guess just to go back to the sulfonylurea thing, you know, these, these medications, they st- essentially stimulate your pancreas to work, make more insulin, but not necessarily glucose dependent, meaning they can do it whenever they want. You know, whenever you take it. Some are longer acting, some are shorter acting. We used to think they really had a, a significant cardiovascular risk associated with them. Like you said, we know they have low sugar and um, weight gain associated with them. Uh, one of them, glimepiride, which is a little bit longer acting one, was compared to one of the uh, DPP4 inhibitors that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit. And the cardiovascular outcome seemed to be somewhat neutral. So that's reassuring for those people who need it. There are some very rare nuanced circumstances where we'll use it sometimes in people who have steroid-induced high sugars and whatnot, but they are cheap, and that's the, that's the, the only time, reason they ever get used anymore, because they don't really have any other benefits other than straight-up sugar control and the risk of having high sugars. So sometimes they'll be used, but um, for what that's worth.
0: Yeah.
1: But the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, that is uh, you know, one of the latest and greatest classes of medications. Um, And it's, I have a funny story about that. I don't know if you remember the story, but when I was in residency, so I hate to admit how long ago that was, but we're talking over 10 years ago. And these were not anywhere near um, ready for primetime yet. In fact, I did a journal club.
0: Yeah, I was there. I was at the journal club. Were you there? Oh my God.
1: And so Dr. Smith, I don't know if Dr. John Smith not the uh, not the famous wrestler, uh, Oklahoma State coach, but um, he was our. I was
0: going to say Pocahontas's uh, boyfriend.
1: Well, that okay, that too. Um- <laughs> So he was one of our, he, he was an awesome attending. He was a gastroenterology attending, great academic uh, leader in our internal medicine program. But I did a journal club on a phase two trial and it was DAPA Was it
0: DAPA, not GANA? I don't know, for some reason. I think,
1: well, I think it was DAPA because DAPA was one of the yeah. earlier ones to be studied. Anyways, and it was a phase two trial for those out there. That just means it, it wasn't like prime time phase three. Here, we're going to get the best, you know, big data in humans, whatever. So
0: And get it approved, yeah. Yeah,
1: and so, <clears throat> but I just thought it was such an interesting mechanism. SGLT2 inhibitors, essentially, the way I describe it to patients is they trick the kidneys into peeing out sugar. So if you have hyperglycemia, your kidneys can't deal with it anyways, and they end up peeing out sugar anyhow. That's part of why people lose weight and get dehydrated when they have hyperglycemia. But these medications work on...
0: Sodium glucose transporters. Glucose
1: transporters. Yeah, that's what SELT2 stands for. And uh, and they they trick them into just peeing out the sugar. Whether you have diabetes or not, it doesn't even matter. We could all take them and we'd pee out sugar. And so the concept was, well, this should help lower blood sugars. It should help with weight loss. And it did. And it's funny. Afterwards, he was like, hey you know, he gave me props. He said, you did a nice job presenting that journal club. And he's like, I don't know, this just sounds a little, I, I wouldn't get your hopes up for these medications. Well, f- fast forward, and these have turned out to be far more beneficial in in diabetes and cardiometabolic health than even just in diabetes. Yeah. And so they while they trick your kidneys into peeing out sugar, they help a little bit with weight loss. Of course, they help a little bit
0: peeing out calories.
1: Yeah. They help a little bit with blood sugars, but they're not dramatic. You know, for people with an average A1C of seven to 8%, which is like a a sugar in the high hundreds, essentially, you know, they, they drop it less than 1%, um, A1C, which is not as good as like some of the other medications, including like metformin, but what they ultimately have done, and we can, we'll can, probably do a whole podcast on SGLT2 inhibitors, what they ultimately proved is that they have dramatic benefits for the heart and the kidneys. Um, so these days we have to do cardiovascular outcome trials for diabetes medications because there was a concern with one class that we'll get to uh, today. And um, so we need to make sure that they're safe. Not only do they help sugars, but that they're safe and actually are helping with what we actually care about. And that's like heart disease, kidney disease, et cetera. And so uh, the empigliflozin medication, which is Jardians for those out there, Uh, it was 2015 when this was presented at the European Association of the Study of Diabetes um, conference. I was a fellow and all the nerds like us were all excited because it was like the first time that a diabetes medication had shown dramatically reduced cardiovascular death. And it it happens right away. So it has nothing to do with, um, you know, sugar levels long-term. It even has nothing to do with like atherosclerotic, like plaque, you know, heart attack type stuff. It, It has to do with a lot of other mechanisms that are not totally, maybe exactly defined yet. And we can save that for another podcast. But they dramatically reduce the risk of heart failure and heart failure events. And it turns out that even though we're peeing out sugar from the kidneys and there is a little risk of getting dehydrated from it, they turn out to be really, really good for those with kidney disease. They preserve kidney function, reduce the risk of death. Um, And it's mainly the the empigliflozin, which is Jardians, dapigliflozin, which is uh, Farziga, and uh, canagliflozin, which is Invokana. So they're really, um, you know, Dramatic medications, and, and they're turning into more like heart and kidney medications yeah. than even sugar medications, really. Yeah,
0: cardiologists love them. Nephrologists love them. I, I still prescribe. I even prescribe them in my, uh, in my online clinic for people that have type 2 diabetes, and I'm helping them lose weight. So
1: Yeah. I think, did we talk about them a little bit in one of our obesity talks, how since they cause people to urinate calories, and they do help a little bit with weight loss, What happens is that the pathophysiology of obesity, of course, creates a compensation and people end up sort of trying to, not purposefully, but they end up eating more to make up for it. So they only result in about, you know, 2% weight loss uh, on average. And it's not just the water weight um, because people tend to, the physiology tends to compensate. So if we combine it with a, uh, you know, an obesity medication, you get a little bit more bang for your buck.
0: Yeah. I don't think we talked about it, but that's a, that was one of Kevin Hall's studies when he looked at i think it was canagliflozin with yeah. fentramine maybe uh yeah so pretty cool stuff uh, gr- great drug uh people on twitter love talking about that yeah uh still i don't like it as much as of course my favorite glp1 class but mm. we, we've talked we've had a whole po- uh, podcast on glp1s and and how they work but um we can briefly just you know mention them again if, if you hadn't listened to those old podcasts but yeah in general the glp1s would also, you either pick an SGLT2 inhibitor or GLP-1, kind of depending on uh, comorbidities. You know, if somebody has risk of heart failure uh, or in kidney disease, you you may uh, lean towards the SGLT2 inhibitors. I I'm, I tend to just always go towards the GLP-1 because everybody's got obesity. And then I likely throw on a little bit of an SGLT2 inhibitor if I need to. But
1: Yeah, I was going to say, in your practice, it might be a, a hint different because you're more primary care focused on obesity. For us, you know, we get the patients who have obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, risk of heart failure, and often they have kidney disease. So I'll tell you that in the reality of everything, we, we often are just going to use both. Yeah, the, the guidelines, these new guidelines I'm talking about, they do kind of try to guide clinicians to help say, okay, do they have more heart failure yeah. and CKD, add the SCLT2 inhibitor after metformin, or instead of metformin, by the way, because It really doesn't matter what your sugars are (laughs) at this point. If you have heart disease and kidney disease or heart failure, you should be on one of these other medications. And to be honest, oftentimes both, depending on everything going on. So unfortunately, these medications still are kind of expensive. But um, the GLP-1 receptor agonists um, are you know liraglutide, which is a daily shot, Uh, semaglutide, which is kind of a similar version, but it's the weekly shot. We love it. Um, Dulaglutide, also known as trulicity, is a weekly shot. These all have cardiovascular outcome data too. So they work differently. They reduce the risk of of, uh, major adverse cardiovascular outcomes, um, including cardiovascular death, say for the the liraglutide study, um, but also stroke uh, that's been shown in the semaglutide and and dulaglutide studies. they, they look more like they're working on the long-term sort of atherosclerotic type cardiovascular outcomes, like heart attacks and stroke, compared to, they say, the SCLT2 inhibitors. They, they're totally different. Um, and they're obviously working much more on the weight loss, the other cardiometabolic surrogate markers, sugars, blood pressure, lipids, all that stuff, um, resulting in long-term outcomes. Um, we know that the newest one are... Our new favorite, terzepatide, which is a GLP-GIP dual receptor agonist, um, has dramatic weight loss and appears to have cardiovascular risk reduction in the, the current studies so far. We just don't have that trial yet, so we can't for sure say that that's the case, but um, really good sugar lowering. Like, so on average, over 2% A1C reduction. Um, and uh you know really good weight loss and all that stuff and you know you've used a ton of it
0: yeah i'm getting patients off their insulin pretty quickly when they're on pretty high doses of insulin uh meal time and basal insulin so it's it's interesting to see because it's like maybe the future is not needing insulin unless people really just have no pancreas left um, i don't know powerful stuff obviously work with your endocrinologist or uh, internist or uh, family doctor whoever's doing your blood sugars but um Cool stuff there. All right. Any other medicines? I mean, obviously we have insulin.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we should probably at least touch on, you know, all of them a little bit. I mentioned um, earlier that I was going to talk about the class that oh, the uh, TZDs, sort of, yeah. yeah, that that sort of increased the awareness that, hey, just because we're improving sugars doesn't necessarily mean that it's improving outcomes. And that's the the TZDs or thiazododilines. And um, this includes an older one, um, but we're only going to talk about pioglitazone, um, or otherwise called Actos. The the other one called Avandia, um, the trade name of that, was is not taken off the market, but we don't really use it anymore because it seemed to have an associated increased cardiovascular risk. Now the issue with these medications is that. They, the way I describe them to patients is they help with our fat distribution and lipid metabolism. So they're, they're called PPAR gamma agonists. So the patients really probably don't care about that, but um, they, part of diabetes is that our healthy fat cells that are sort of peripheral subcutaneous fat cells that should be storing our sugar as fat, they become overwhelmed by our energy imbalance and they decide to quit working. And that's when we start storing all that adipose tissue in our abdominal cavity, our visceral fat, our liver, our pancreas, our muscle cells. And that's all associated with the insulin resistance and ultimately type two diabetes. Well, these medications essentially help to change that. Um, and, uh, and so, But they also have an associated water retention. And so if you have any risk of heart failure, they can exacerbate that. And so the, the Avandia, um, essentially just was kind of worse across the board. Certainly good for sugars, not quite as good for our lipids or cholesterol as pyoglitazone or actose. And as it turned out, actose actually has a lot of cardiovascular benefit. It's really good for our lipids, our cholesterol patterns. And it's been shown, as long as you don't have heart failure, to not only be really good for sugar levels and even diabetes prevention, going back to those who have prediabetes, that it actually has cardiovascular outcome benefits. So for example, in recent years, there was a big trial in those who have prediabetes and a history of stroke. So very high cardiovascular risk. And when given uh, randomized to pyoglitazone or Actos, Those people who had obesity, pre-diabetes, and a history of stroke had reduced cardiovascular outcomes. And so um, I actually use this medication a lot, especially in those who seem to be sort of thin, but with abdominal obesity and don't have a lot of that peripheral uh, fat tissue. It's a little bit more on a spectrum of what we call lipodystrophy, sort of where the healthy fat cells really don't work that well. Um, And I I really get a lot of bang for the buck with the lowest dose of pioglitazone, and you get minimal risks with that. You don't get a lot of water retention. Um, and so, you know, they have heart failure. They might not uh, tolerate it. You might not want to use it. I do have, I know there's one person I have who has a little bit of heart failure, but gets away with just 15 milligrams of pioglitazone has really good sugar lipid benefits. Um, we use it a lot to get off insulin because it really helps to get off insulin. And uh, as long as they don't have the water retention, it's it's pretty good. There are some subtle long-term risks, maybe, of bladder cancer that hasn't really panned out as much, and maybe it's not great for bones. And this has to just do with, um, you know, different cell, where where cells go to as they turn into you know, fat or bone, essentially. That's kind of how I describe it. So it's actually a really good medication that probably isn't used as much anymore because people got so scared of it about fifteen years ago.
0: Yeah, no, I, I still use it once in a while. Rarely, though, because of everybody's, yeah. everybody's wanting to lose weight. <laughs> yeah,
1: so I, I use it a lot, but, but I, again, slightly different patient populations. At you. And yeah.
0: I have. All right. I, I also want to mention GLP one medicines uh, can be used in pre diabetes as well for potential. Uh, in fact. Probably reduces the risk of of progression to type two diabetes, but again, expensive,
1: dramatically, Ex- actually, dr- very dramatic. Yeah,
0: expensive though, but you know, if somebody has obesity, you know, I, I use them anyway. So um, I'm always just shilling out the GLP ones. So uh, yeah,
1: well, and in fact, at the at the doses that are proof for obesity, um, that's where it's really been studied for the diabetes prevention because weight loss is the primary goal for preventing, uh, progression of type two diabetes. And so the phenamine topiramate combination called QSIMIA that we have has been shown to help reduce, uh, delay the progression to type two diabetes. And so as the liraglutide or sexenda semaglutide, um, or a and ultimately I'm sure we're going to see some amazing data on terzepatide or, um, for that too. But yeah, there's a cost. If you prevent type two diabetes, That's probably more cost-effective, though, if you have, like, really no risk of type 2 diabetes, even if you have obesity. So um, what else? What about acarbose?
0: Acarbose is a a medicine that uh, is an alpha-glucosidase inhibitor. It it prevents the breakdown of of starch, basically, in your gut, Um, so you don't absorb as much carbohydrate or you don't have a blood sugar spike because it's going right through you. And actually, uh, one of those studies I thought that you cited before used to head an arm of it um, and it, it there may be some cardiovascular benefit. Yep. Uh, you are right on.
1: That's, it's, it's an older, there's some older data to suggest that even though it's a little bit of annoying medication because it doesn't have the best sugar control. It doesn't have a lot of weight loss on its own, even though it's kind of preventing carb breakdown and starches. And of course it's associated with some awesome flatulence, yeah. flat, flatulence farting, um, because you have more... <laughs> It starts in your uh, large intestine for the bacteria to, to deal with. Um, it has a little bit of sugar benefit, a little bit. It's a little bit more weight neutral or beneficial. And there are data to suggest it has some cardiovascular benefit. Um, and, it, and it also has data to uh, show that it, it also is one of those uh, pre-diabetes medications that can help delay the um, progression to type 2 diabetes. So it actually is a really good medicine. It's just you have to take it three times a day with meals. You get gas. Um, you know, you're causing your friends issues. It's
0: st- similar to similar to the orlistat we always talk about, yeah. where people shit their pants. But you have gas now, so it, yeah. there's actually a recent study. I tagged. I was, was going to
1: say it. I thought maybe you'd notice this.
0: They <laughs> combined they combined the carbos with orlistat, uh, which was
1: our idea, by the way. We we had we done should, that. We-
0: yeah, if we, we should have s- we
1: should have been the ones to to study that and publish it. But. And it had
0: a little, it had a you know clinically meaningful weight yeah. loss uh, outcome sure. difference. So, but then when you fart, it's going to be sharp, and then you're, then you're <laughs> gonna be, you might be mad at us. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's never happened to us. We used to take them just to kind of see what it, what, what side effects. I, I never had any of that. <laughs> Except there were some. There might have been a brown cloud around in the in the,
1: in the room. <laughs> in the room. <laughs> Oh, we just lost a, another yeah. thousand followers. All yeah.
0: right. we might have gotten another another thousand from some other <laughs> part of the internet. I'm not sure. Holy
1: cow! Anyway, All right, what else? So we didn't we didn't mention the DPP four inhibitors. Yeah. So which we do need to mention those because they have to do with the GLP one hormone that we keep talking about
0: endogenous.
1: So DPP four inhibitors: sitagliptin, uh, which is known as Genuvia, linagliptin, which is known as Tragenta. And saxagliptin, which we won't really talk about, because that's the one that had a little bit of concern for heart failure with it. But these other medicines are used a lot; they're very well tolerated. And what they do is they block that this this enzyme. We won't get into the the technical term of it, but
0: dipeptidyl peptidase. It doesn't matter. Four, yeah. D,
1: so DPP four, and what that enzyme does in our body is it breaks down our endogenous or our usual amount of GLP-1 and GLP uh, hormones from our intestines that are supposed to help us, which is why we give those hormones out. Um, So these medications reduce that breakdown, help our endogenous GLP-1 hormones stick around a little bit longer. They have fairly decent sugar control benefits, but not amazing. They're neutral for weight, so they don't really help the weight loss like you might expect. And they haven't shown any cardiovascular benefits, like actually giving the high dose hormones. And like I said, the saxagliptin had a little hint of concern for heart failure. So we don't do that. Um, But they're otherwise really, really safe and really well tolerated. So we do use them sometimes for those who don't really need the cardiovascular or the kidney benefits. They don't need a ton of sugar control. We're worried about side effects. You know, It might be some people that are You know who are elderly and and we just
0: need to. They don't want to take a shot, whatever. Yeah,
1: we we just we need to keep their sugars in a relatively safe range without side effects. So we we do use them sometimes, but generally speaking, we usually can convince people to take the actual GLP one receptor hormone or the GLP GIP, even though it's a shot because you get so many more benefits from
0: it. Yeah, and some people are like, well, why don't you take the these DPP four inhibitors with the the GLP one agonist? Um, Or they're like, well. Let's let's increase your own endogenous GLP one with eating more protein and and taking these special supplements and it's like eh. it doesn't matter. It still doesn't have the same effect. And also those those won't even work on on the, the GLP one agonists of it. Yeah. Correct. And and, and the,
1: the the level of the GLP one uh receptor um you know uh work that is done with the those Medicines okay. we use, it just blows it away, and 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 so adding a DP four inhibitor doesn't matter because everything's saturated and whatnot. And you get all the benefits. Yeah, so,
0: those have a much longer longer half life than our own uh, in uh, endogenous. Endogenous yeah. is pretty relatively quick.
1: Yeah. So there are a couple of rare medications that we don't use much anymore that that we can at least mention. Maybe people will be recommended to use these. Um, one is, do you know what I'm going to talk what, about? Cycloset. Yeah. So that's bromocryptine. So that is actually a medicine that we don't use even for prolactinomas, but that's what it was originally made for. It's a dopamine agonist. The interesting thing about it is it's not that well tolerated, which is why we don't use it as much as something called cabergoline for people who have prolactinomas, which is a prolactin secreting tumor of your pituitary gland. But um, it does actually, it, without getting too deep into the weeds, it does have some sugar benefit. It's not uh, remarkable. And it does have some tolerance issues. But the interesting thing, it also has, a, has some data to suggest maybe there are some cardiovascular benefits in the past. It just is never really used. Yeah, There's a I'm, cost to it. It's not dramatically beneficial other than maybe the cardiovascular benefits. It's something that maybe some people out there might have been recommended to I take. I think
0: I, I it just, prescribed it once.
1: For, for diabetes? That's, that's for, actually just, pretty interesting. Just
0: for fun. It was <laughs> just like, for fun, It yeah. was like, hey, let's take some – I think I had samples so, of it. And I was like, hey, let's try it.
1: Yeah, you know, so probably most people aren't going to even hear about that or, or use it. Um, and then the other one is um, uh, a type of bile acid sequestrant that actually um, has been used. You know, it's really more used for uh, cholesterol,
0: which still isn't that used that often,
1: <laughs> right? Even for that, and and it, you know, it has a little bit of sugar benefits, and um, you know, maybe even some cardiovascular benefits because it's helping cholesterol and stuff. Again, most people aren't going to be using that unless. You know we're really trying to you know find different things that people are tolerate well, and we're trying to improve sugars and lipids and cholesterol yeah. risk. and
0: most people don't most people don't tolerate it that well anyway, so it's like it's probably not going to be used so
1: that's that but um but otherwise, and then you know we probably should have a whole nother podcast just on the insulins and let's not get into insulin, but we will use yeah. insulin in those who have type two diabetes. Um, Because remember, the pancreas is the thing that's not working anymore once you get to a certain point of type 2 diabetes. And if your sugars are just so uncontrolled and we can't, you know, use these other medications plus diet and exercise to keep sugars in a safe range, we will use a variety of types of insulins that we can get into, maybe when we talk about type 1 diabetes, actually. But... um, yeah, I think that's it. And, and we just don't want to be as aggressive with sugar control in those who have type two diabetes if we have to use insulin. So we, you know, that gets into tight glycemic control versus relatively mild glycemic control. And I think that's a that's a topic for another podcast too, anyway. So yeah. that's that's just the rundown of meds.
0: So yeah, here's the gist. Aggressive lifestyle, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, plus or minus metformin, maybe SGLT2 inhibitor, maybe GLP one agonist, maybe both potential for, uh, pioglitazone, pioglitazone. Uh, yeah. Then maybe if you don't want to do, yeah, maybe a DPP four. probably not cycloset. Maybe some
1: acarbose in there. Maybe acarbose. That's about it. I mean, and I, and I generally, you know, in my practice, of course, uh, because of my population, I, you know, there's sometimes where I'm really thinking really broadly. Um, but I can tell you, I've not prescribed a bromocryptine or cycloset recently. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one I probably have not prescribed. Um, Yeah. A Carbos once in a while, um, the bile acid sequestrant. Yeah, sometimes. Probably not recently, though, because we have such good stuff now.
0: Yeah. Very good. All right. Till next time, here's our outro. This podcast is for entertainment and education and information purposes only. Remember, the physicians on this podcast are not your physician. It should not be considered professional or personalized medical advice. It should not be used to replace speaking with your physician or medical professional to discuss your specific health concerns. The topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose or treat any condition. As a result, we are not responsible for any unwanted medical outcomes. The views and opinions discussed are of those of the host only and do not
1: represent those of any other entities we